It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Dr. Stephanie Seneff, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a big aloha from the island of Hawaii. <laughs> well, that's where you are. It's not where I am. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. It's a beautiful place. Very you, fortunate to be here. Are you, uh, are you originally from Hawaii or have you just ended up there as an immigrant? <laughs> I'm basically an immigrant. We're now officially living here. So that's been a new thing since COVID. And we're really pleased. We've been, we were doing part-time Boston, Hawaii for several years. And now we're full-time, not quite full-time. We still spend time in Boston, but it's our main, our main home. And why was Hawaii the decision for where you're going to end up? <laughs> well, you know, we came here for the first time back, way back when, when our kids were little and we all fell in love with this island. It's Kauai, which is really, really beautiful. So lush, lots of rain, you know, just tremendous beauty at every turn of the road and very small population. So we uh, we said even back then, we said we want to retire here. So way back when, when our kids were young, we were thinking in terms of retiring here. So we bought a place here, you know, maybe 10 years ago and gradually increased the amount of time we spent here. Unfortunately, I can keep on working. I'm still working for MIT uh, part time, 60 percent, and um, I can work completely from home at this point because of uh, the kind of work I'm doing. So it works out extremely well. Fantastic. And, and uh, there's a reason why I asked you where you were. And, and But I must say, before we start, you have a record for this podcast, Dr. Stephanie, because you actually have the record of the most degrees of any guest <laughs> that I've ever had. And I've had some I've had some pretty clever people on the podcast as well, including Nobel Prize laureates and the type. So congratulations for <laughs> having you. those degrees. And just just for our audience, what what is your educational background? Okay, it's all from MIT. Um, so it starts with a bachelor's in uh, biology from MIT. And then I have a master's, an E degree, and a PhD degree in electrical engineering and computer science, all from MIT. And I've worked at MIT all my life. So all my research, all my career has been at MIT. Not to be confused with MIB. <laughs> <laughs> Although with some of the information that you have in that head of yours, Stephanie, um, I'm sure a few people out there wish they had one of those forgetting devices that, that they could blink at you in. And that's why we brought you onto the podcast today, because maybe there's a better way that you can describe it, but you are an expert on the subject of glyphosate, also yes, known as I, Roundup. Right. Yes. I've become a, an expert of necessity because I was looking for, uh, trying to understand what was causing the autism epidemic in the United States. Back in 2007 was really when I got serious about looking at autism and trying to figure out which environmental toxic exposures were causing it. I knew it had to be something. 
because um, it's it's not genetic if it's going up exponentially. There's a genetic component. Some kids are more sensitive, you know, more susceptible than others because of their genetics. But there's something that's really disturbing the, the health of all the children in this country. And I wanted to figure out what it was. And I looked for five years and didn't succeed. I was quite frustrated because I understood that, you know, I learned a lot about autism. I understood that there was a major gut gut connection, that they had lots of trouble with the gut that was connected to their disease. So I was looking for something they might that might be exposing their gut. And I was thinking in terms of antibiotics for a while, like maybe it's too many antibiotics for ear infections, messing up their gut microbiome. And um, I wasn't thinking of glyphosate at all because, I, in fact, I didn't even know the word. I was, you know, Roundup was something I knew, but and I didn't use it. I never used it because I don't like to use poisons. But everyone told us Roundup's not a problem, so I didn't even think to look at it. But it turned out I happened to be at a conference where Professor Don Huber gave a presentation, a two-hour presentation on glyphosate. And I was on the edge of my seat. I was like, wow, this is it. I mean, it was just, it became so clear just from what he said about what glyphosate does and what I knew already about what autism is. It fits so well that I just became convinced. And it was after that, that I found out that autism rates are going up exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage. It's the perfect match when you plot the two curves over time. And you're looking at even the integration of glyphosate usage in the past so that it really fits with the child's lifetime exposure, um, correlated, strongly, strongly correlated with the, with the rate of, and this is across the country, of course, the entire country, when you look at that, at that systemic level. So, so for the layman, Stephanie, what, what is glyphosate and what does it do and why is it bad? Yeah, glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup. And most people know what Roundup is. You can go down to the hardware store or the, or the garden store and get uh, glyphosate to kill the dandelions or to clear out the weeds in your in your walkway. Um, very popular in the United States for that purpose and completely unrestricted. Um, people maybe don't know that it's also very heavily used in agriculture and uh, particularly since about 2000. They came up with very clever technology that could introduce genetics into plants that would keep them safe from glyphosate. Glyphosate kills all plants unless they've been engineered to resist it. So it's a fantastic weed killer. And the claim was that it's very harmless to humans, you know, like aspirin. It's like extremely um, non-toxic to humans, which made it a really, really wonderful herbicide. And so it's just set apart from all the other. We have a lot of herbicides and they're all used. Um, all the other ones pretty much are regulated. You know, you can't just go to the store and buy it. You have to have a process and farmers use it, you know, and all the other ones are considered to be much more toxic than glyphosate. But I don't think that's true. I think glyphosate is right up there with the rest of them. And we don't realize that. And so we use it's used far more than any of the others because it's, quote unquote, so safe. And it's used extensively on our all those GMO crops, which are the major crops of the food industry, the processed food industry, the corn, the soy, the canola, the sugar beets. And then there's alfalfa. Those are all major GMO crops that have been engineered to resist glyphosate. They just spray the, the poison all over the crop. It doesn't die. Very handy. But it gets into the food because it gets taken up by the crops. And uh, maybe the worst is that they're spraying it right before harvest on non-GMO crops. Many people think I can buy non-GMO. I'll be safe. That's not true at all because some of the highest levels are being, are being found in non-GMO crops. And these are crops that are sprayed right before harvest as a desiccant. It's very convenient to spray with glyphosate. You synchronize the, the harvest too. So you get everything to go to seed at the same time to increase the yield. 
and you might be chasing a, a frost or a snowstorm. You know, if you live up north, so up in Canada, they use a lot of glyphosate on the wheat, on the barley, on the oats, on the on the uh, garbanzo beans and the chickpeas and the lentils. You know, so if there's some uh, seed crops. Um, oil seed crops. So all of these things are getting uh, exposure right before harvest, which is, of course, uh, very quick to get into the food and ending up with much higher levels than some of the GMO crops. Because it, it lasts a little while as well, I think like four, up to four months, maybe a little bit longer. It's very variable. And, and that was something that took me a long time to, uh, to try to get the story on that because it's quite complex and depends on the soil type. It can get taken up into trees and it can stick around for 12 years. There was a, a study out of China that still found it 12 years later in trees. Um, and it goes, it can get into the ocean and if it gets too deep or the sun, because sunlight can break it down. But if it gets into the deep ocean, it can stick around for at least a year. Um, Brazil showed that it was accumulating every year, year to year. They were getting more and more in the soil because it wasn't completely degra degrading before they introduced the glyphosate of the next year. So it's accumulating in some soils, and it particularly depends on the soil type as far as whether there are microbes that can break it down. But if those aren't there, there are ways that it can get trapped in biofilms and not be able to, um, they don't have access to it. So there's various ways that it can uh, elude, elude break, getting broken down evade you know and end up sticking around for a long time so it, allegedly it's supposed to disappear for after a couple of weeks this is what that is we're told that it's a great you know it's great because you spray it two weeks later it's gone you know and maybe in ideal conditions that might be mostly true but it's not uh, but there are many conditions in which that's not true okay so <laughs> This is the great thing about my job, Stephanie, is that uh, I'm constantly learning about all these ridiculous things that can kill us. And uh, I've got to say, at times, it's a little bit too much to take on. And and I know that the, the general public do experience a bit of fatigue around um, being bombarded with, you know, what's good for us and what's not. And there's so much misinformation around. What, what are some non uh non-food uses that Roundup is found in? Like, because uh, it's in a lot of different products. Do you know off the top of your head just some main ones that are daily consumables that people put on their bodies or whatever it might be? It's not used in those products, but it can end up in them just because it's in the things that those products are built from. For example, and cotton is a big one because cotton is a GMO crop, Roundup-ready crop. And uh, so so the I think it was Argentina, it might have been Brazil, one of the countries in South America, there was a study where they looked at um, looked for glyphosate in common cotton products, and they found it in tampons, which is very worrisome for me. I mean, I think you need to use organic tampons. <laughs> they found it in, you know, sterile cotton gauze. I imagine that it's in children's clothing, and the children today have a lot of issues with eczema. And I'm wondering whether the cotton clothing is causing the eczema because of the of the glyphosate in the cotton that they're wearing. It's probably so. I wrote a paper hypothesizing that it would be likely to be present in certain drugs, um, especially, especially injectable drugs. And we did a big study on uh, drug side effects and uh, found interesting stories about certain drugs that had really peculiar, nasty reactions that could, you know, adverse reactions that could even kill the patient. And then we analyzed which drugs they were. And when we determined whether it would be plausible, those drugs would have glyphosate in them. It was quite stunning. One was a drug that was, it, um, was basically a uh, protein that is made by cows in their lungs and they extract it from the cow's lungs. And the cows have a study on cows showed the highest concentrations of glyphosate in their lungs. And this protein 
was uh, causing some bizarre, bizarre reactions under certain circumstances that nobody could understand. And if that protein is contaminated with glyphosate, that could explain it because injecting glyphosate is really, really a toxic way to present it to the body. So we found, um, uh, and also just blood products, you know, glyphosate in the blood, because glyphosate is definitely in the blood. So when you're getting um, platelets or something like that, you're probably getting glyphosate. And it depends on the person you get it from as far as how much is there. So the, <clears throat> those cheap genes you're getting from Target uh, might be doused in glyphosate. So you've got it, you've got it against your skin, which is which is not great, obviously. And then, you know, if you're talking about uh, tampons, I mean, you've got really passing scary. that 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 blood uh, barrier, aren't you? Like, yes. Um, Something happened to me when I was about sixteen. Uh, we were we were travelling in New Zealand uh, from one part of the country to another, and we stopped so that I could get out and have a wee on the side of the road. And I and I got uh, dusted by a oh. crop, crop dusting plane. Oh no! And and uh, it's only with the benefit of hindsight now that I I developed a, um, headaches uh, oh, for yeah. a few years. Wow. And and then I developed GERD at nineteen. Yeah, wow, interesting. Which, which is really young to get. Yes, GERD, absolutely. Isn't it? And absolutely. I just wonder if that might have been. Random. Wow. I mean, I bet you. Are. I bet you it was. It makes sense to me. Both of those make sense to me. Would that have been enough of a dose to do any real damage? I think so. I've actually been contacted by multiple people who have shared with me, you know, someone was out walking their dog and they got hit by the plane spraying the glyphosate and both the dog and the dog walker got very sick after that. And, and someone in Australia actually was sharing with me a similar story about having had an incident in which they were exposed to high levels of glyphosate. A single incident, high levels, I think would be a very, very difficult thing to recover from. Well, we're assuming that the uh, that the food that I was eating. Um, I mean, thankfully, Stephanie, my mother, uh, for whatever reason, had us on a, a fairly organic diet from from a very very early age. She's she's uh, she was a bit of a pioneer in terms of people that I know. But um, we we still were eating uh, bread and you know eating lollies and stuff that probably would have had access and, and a lot of it would have been imported from the US as well. Um, and I just wonder what. What levels, like how can you test to see how much glyphosate you've got in your body or what's a, what's a telltale sign? You can uh, get uh, glyphosate tested in your urine. That's something you can do. Even uh, I think you can actually just order a kit and get the kit and, and uh, get the sample and ship it back and get the results for glyphosate contamination in your urine. And that seems to be a, a good indicator of disease because I've seen several papers now that have shown glyphosate in the urine correlating with disease um, for humans. So this is really quite remarkable. There was a study on fatty liver disease. And in my book, I have a chapter on the liver and I talk a lot about fatty liver disease. There was a study that compared uh, healthy people to, pe to people with fat fatty liver disease. And then they separated them into two crowds, worse disease and more benign disease, you know, less advanced disease. So they had three piles. And then they measured the glyphosate in the urine of all the groups, and they found statistically significant differences among all three. So, so the, the, the worst fatty liver disease, the most glyphosate, the healthy, the least glyphosate, and in the middle was the less advanced. And there was a study on rats that showed that if they exposed them to glyphosate at levels below regulatory limits over an extended period, they also developed fatty liver disease just from that low-dose exposure. So, I mean, people think it's so 
harmless and they think the levels and the government thinks the levels of exposure in the food are nothing to worry about. So my government never measures glyphosate in the food. They basically say it's too expensive and it's a waste of money because the stuff is harmless. So why do we care? We know it's in the food and we don't care. Well, um, Anna, my darling fiance, is Russian, and I know that you mentioned in the book that uh, the, the the demon that is Vladimir Putin, um, who I I actually admire, I think, with many of the things he does, and this is added, this is added even more. He's he's basically almost banned glyphosate from Russia, and they they want to become the biggest organic producer of food in the world. Is that right? That's what I've heard. And I'm, I mean, I'm delighted that he's doing that. And I'm delighted that he's standing up to the West and saying, hey, you guys, you know, wake up. This stuff is toxic. We're not going to allow it. And, and, and Russia's positioned well to do that because they have a lot of small organic farms already. Just naturally, people, lots of people have a little, you know, farm on their property. So I think they're well positioned to do it. They haven't adopted these huge mega crop, you know, farms the way we have. It'll be much harder for us to revert back to the to the good old days, which I consider when you had those small family farms. We need to bring those back in my country. We need to do it fast if we want to have a healthy future. You know, the United States spends far more on healthcare costs than any other country in the world, and you know we're drowning in healthcare costs. And we've got so many people that are so sick. It's just really it's demoralizing to just look at the airport and see the people that can barely walk are the ones that are in the wheelchairs. You have all the wheel wheelchairs lined up when the plane arrives, you know, it's just so sad to see how decrepit we are and it's going to get, you know, worse over time. And of course, there's also this issue of epigenetics. There's recent papers coming out that are showing that low dose glyphosate exposure to rats when they're pregnant, um, it didn't have any effect, any observable effect on the rats. They seem to be fine. The offspring seemed to be fine. They grew up, they had pet, you know, their offspring, next generation, next generation, you go down to the third generation, you start to see lots and lots of trouble. So things got worse with each generation. This was epigenetic effects due to the exposure of the great great grandmother who got the um, who got into the germline and, and gave it a strong signal hey, watch out, you got to change policy here because we've got this horrible toxin. And those cells learned something from that exposure that caused them to behave. To remember that all the way through all those generations, it's quite fascinating. The epigenetics um, is a very interesting area of research, and we are finding that it's a very powerful influence that can last for many, many generations beyond the exposure. And we're going to so, see that in humans as well, because now we've got we're beginning to get those next generations of children who are going to be sick because of exposures their parents had when they were pregnant. So, so it's 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 obviously doing something with the genes, and and it's they're mutating. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, but epigenetics is not actually genetic mutation, which is what's so interesting. The genes are intact in epigenetics, but they have extra things happening to them that cause them to remember um, the event and then to learn how to behave differently because of it. So they change their their metabolic policy in dramatic ways that cause you to be sick, uh, probably as some kind of compensation for this expected exposure. That's what I see with glyphosate. Glyphosate messes up the metabolism so badly that the body has to adopt alternative methods to achieve the goals it needs to achieve, achieve in terms of keeping you healthy. And this is where the inflammation comes from. We have all these diseases that are connected to an inflammation. You know, you sort of hear inflammation is behind all disease. You've probably heard things like that inflammation in the brain, you know, you have the headache, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, you have the inflammation in the knee, uh, inflammation in the gut, you know, causing, uh, all gut problems. So it's inflammation is, is really, really interesting. And it's a process by which 
um, the body is trying to recover. Um, really, I think a lot of it has to do with the sulfate deficiency, trying to recover enough sulfate to keep the blood healthy. And, um, and to do that, it needs that inflammation to oxidize sulfur. It needs it to be able to make those reactions happen. So it's choosing an alternative biological pathway to achieve a goal that's being blocked because a normal way of achieving that goal is busted by glyphosate. And I wrote about that in my book. I think this is a really good time to bring up the book as well. Toxic Legacy is, yes, is the name here. of your book. <laughs> um, uh, how is the weed killer glyphosate destroying our health and the environment? And, I, and I've read it and, uh, and I've gone over a couple of passages and it ties in really beautifully with all the other work that I've been doing. And when I say work, I mean, you know, just general research. I, I'm not a scientist or a doctor or I'm just someone who's really passionate about figuring out the truth for myself so I can make an informed decision. Because when I had my autoimmune disease, I was told by medical professionals that it was incurable and, and I fixed it. And I was like, what else are you wrong about, arsehole? And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so it's led me down this journey. So I don't take anything on face value now. And, and what you're talking about, Stephanie, makes so much sense because the catalyst for me was removing, at least initially, gluten out of my diet. Makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, Australia adopts a lot of the American farming practices in many cases. Um, we're probably not as hammered as what the US would be in terms of glyphosate, but it wouldn't shock me if, you know, there's still enough here to do um, a reasonable amount of damage. And, uh, and, and once I quit gluten, so I'd removed all bread and pasta. Uh, I quit drinking, so that, that removed all beer um, and mm. then wine as well, all of which contain, well, can contain huge amounts of glyphosate. That's right. It's coming up positive in all these different products that are from bread, you know, wheat products, bar- barley uh, in the beer, wines. So uh, Zen Honeycutt uh, measured glyphosate in a whole bunch of different uh, California wine. She found it in all of them, including the biodynamics. The biodynamics had a lot less, but they all had some. Uh, so, very uh, discouraging that um, it's in those. Well, especially, <laughs> especially in the biodynamic, because that, that's that's what you rely upon. And, and I, I have adopted uh, a mindset where I try and go organic as much as I can. Um, a lot of the, the meat that I get is is pastured beef from some of the most pure pastures in in the world actually a place called cape grim down in tasmania which has the world's cleanest air oh and, that's great <laughs> uh, yeah and they, don't, they don't use any sprays or any of that stuff down there and, and the meat tastes fantastic um and so that that will explain to some people i think the effectiveness of what i've been doing with a carnivore diet because although people say you need a more diverse diet i've eliminated the majority of the, the channels in which to take on glyphosate, is it? I think you probably have, actually. I think that's probably true. And I actually think that when people do um, go on a more, uh, you know, a high fat diet, a high animal-based diet, I think they're getting less glyphosate. They have a, a lesser chance of eating the foods that are really highly contaminated because it's coming directly from the crop. You know, that's when you have the wheat. Wheat is a really big problem, and I and I have a, I've written a, a book, um, an article on gluten intolerance uh, together with Anthony Samsel connected to glyphosate. I think glyphosate's a direct hit with the wheat because it's in the uh, it gets I think it gets into proteins, and I talk about that in my book in place of glycine. Glycine is an amino acid; those are the building blocks of proteins. Glyphosate is a glycine molecule, except it has extra material stuck onto its nitrogen atom. 
And I argue in my book that glyphosate is getting into the proteins by mistake. And this is what's causing all these different diseases that we're seeing. And gluten intolerance is a very good example because glyphosate, I think it gets into the wheat protein. Gluten is a difficult protein to break down anyway, because it has a lot of prolines. And we have specialized microbes that help us break down the proline. And the lactobacillus in particular, they have several enzymes uh, that are unique uh, that help the host to metabolize the gluten by virtue of being able to pull the proline out of the, out of the uh, molecule. And lactobacillus are one of the hardest hit microbes from glyphosate. So you're killing off the microbe that would help you digest the gluten. And you've got the glyphosate in the gluten. It makes it even harder to digest. And you also mess up the actual digestive enzymes because Anthony Samso found glyphosate contamination in a, in a product. He ordered from a lab a product that was a di digestive enzymes from a pig. And he found high levels of glyphosate in these enzymes that digest proteins. So it's messing up the enzymes that digest the proteins. It's messing up the bacteria that help us break down the proteins. And of course, it's in the protein, which makes the protein itself more autoimmune prone. So all of that together makes the uh, autoimmune disease from the gluten become quite, quite probable. Okay. So I find that so interesting, Stephanie, the, because the, the ruminant animals seem to be a really effective way of, of uh, minimizing the, the transmission from glyphosate. Is that, is that, are we on the right path with that? Yeah, well, we don't know. I mean, they do have glyphosate also in the cows if they're being if fed glyphosate contaminated food. And a lot of them are getting a lot of a high dose of glyphosate in their feed because they're eating these GMO products. Um, and studies have shown they've actually looked at the tissues of the cows. I mentioned earlier, the lungs had the highest levels, which we don't eat the lungs. So that's good, right? <laughs> From that standpoint. Um, but um, but it was found in the tissues of the cows. So they're, um, but I suspect the muscle probably has a lot less, you know. Well, uh, the reason I find that so interesting as well is because of late, I have uh, gone off eggs and pork mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and salmon. And it turns oh, out yes. that almost all of the salmon in Australia is fed these pellets. And a lot oh, of them no. are soy-based pellets, right? And Because they, they colour the flesh. Because as, as I've learned... The way that the salmon develops the color of its flesh is from the vigorous activity of swimming upstream, right? Oh, interesting. Now, now I don't know whether that's hundred percent the truth, but that's what I read from a reliable source. So we'll just run with that. But the pork is fed soy meal. Yes. And and in where I live in in Melbourne, in the state of Victoria, the and I've spoken about this on previous podcasts, the the laws around organic are very very ambiguous because during periods mm. of drought. They're allowed to feed them emergency rations, oh, which, no. are, which is soy meal. Oh, gosh. So, so it, it, it makes sense to me that I'm, I've developed this sensitivity and, and people are like, oh, you're becoming you know, intolerant to this stuff. I, I'm becoming dialed in is what's happening. I'm, my body's learning what it likes and what it doesn't. Yes. It could be you have an extra sensitivity to glyphosate you know, because of the accident that you mentioned to me earlier. Not the incredible Hulk. that your body has learned how to, how to protect it. <laughs> I I was surprised to find I was looking at um I was interested in dogs feeding dogs um, pork because I thought pork fat would be a great thing for the dog probably good for its fur, and so I was you know so I, I was interested to see and I looked up on the web you know pork fat for dogs. And I get all these hits about pancreatic cancer. You know, oh, you can't feed your dog pork fat because it's going to cause pancreatic cancer. 
I was really stunned because glyphosate, pancreatic cancer is one of the diseases that's going up exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage. And the pigs are getting tons and tons of glyphosate in their feed. So it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that they're probably getting a lot of glyphosate in that pork fat. And that might be what's causing the pancreatic cancer. It just seems stupid to me that a dog can't eat pork fat, you know? Well, uh, so the issue is, and this ties in beautifully with uh, Dr. Chris Kenobi and, and Dr. Joe McCullough, who you, you know very well, uh, with regards to uh, omega-6 or linoleic acid from seed oils. Because the because pigs and chickens aren't ruminants, they take on the omega-6 in their, in their fat. And that's where the link between taking mm. on all of this stuff can and the inflammatory response as a result. Um, it's like a, you, you got this double whammy. So you've got the, you know, this, these uh, oxidized seed oils being consumed and then you've got the glyphosate on top as well. It's like, you know, if you're eating just standard American fare, uh, you know, you, you don't have a shot really, do you? Right. And in fact, I do know Chris Kenobi and he, I remember we've had exchanges about all this issue with this linoleic acid. And I did, and of course, Mercola is very big on that. He's got a new book coming out or it's maybe already out on linoleic acid and its toxicity. And so of course that was very interesting to me. So I did a, the fats are a real tough topic. If you've ever tried to research them, they're so complicated because they go down all these different biological pathways and they produce these things called icosanoids and glucotrines, all these ridiculous names of these different products. And there's just a million of each one of them, you know, so it gets into a big fat mess pretty quickly. And you're like, you know, I can't figure this out, forget it. But there is something pretty simple about it. When you look, you know, harder, you realize there's basically three pathways for these linoleic acids to go. And one of them is this LOX pathway, lipoxygenase, which produces these leukotrienes. And then there's another cycloxygenase, cycloxygenase, Cyclooxygenase pathway, which produces uh, something else, prostaglandins. Those and those are both bad. They cause inflammation. But there's a third pathway, and that's the cytochrome P450 enzyme pathway, and that produces a product that actually acts like an endogenous cannabinoid. So it's going to be beneficial because you know we've had so much health uh, benefits from cannabinoids lately. We've gone crazy with them. Your body, because glyphosate suppresses cytochrome P450 enzymes. The linoleic acid is can't can't go down that pathway very well, so you get uh, it get it blocked up, right? You get extra linoleic acid that you can't metabolize into this beautiful thing, and it's basically a signal that those cytochrome P four enzymes that are broken is what causes these other guys to be produced. So there's like you see the body is saying, "Oh my God, the cyp enzymes are broken. This is big trouble." And then it makes these other molecules that signal that trouble and cause that inflammation that you need in order to get at the problem a different way. So it's really, it becomes a mess as far as you no longer can do the biology the right way. So you're stuck creating collateral damage through this alternative pathway that involves these uh, very different enzymes because the enzymes you really need are broken. And I think that's really a big part of glyphosate's uh, mischief is this disruption of those cytochrome people with the enzymes. And just one of the things they do is this uh, producing this endogenous cannabinoid out of this protein, this molecule that's otherwise going to be quite toxic. Okay, so we're talking, we're, we're getting very technical here, and uh, even for my very powerful brain, <laughs> I'm sure, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure a lot of it will be going potentially over people's heads, and because it is a very complex subject. Um, to, to simplify, Stephanie, uh, 
it's it's not just about glyphosate. There is some, there is heavy metals and a few other things as well that are involved. But but let's let's dabble in in the controversial for a little bit. Let's talk about what's going on with uh, the vid. And um, I I heard something through uh, Tucker Goodrich, and it was a, an interview that he did with some some doctors who were talking about the people that were actually dying from COVID had. Uh, two two major uh, contributing factors: comorbidities in the form of like metabolic health issues, you know, whatever it might be. But they also had uh, stored excess stored linoleic acid, and you've got another component mm. that relates to that as well. Yes, I mean that's very interesting. And another one I would say is, is vitamin D deficiency. There's been a lot of studies that have shown uh, much worse outcome with vitamin D deficiency. So it frustrates me the government doesn't say just get outside and get some sunlight, you know, so you can boost your vitamin D. This they should be telling us that if we want to be safe from COVID. And of course, glyphosate disrupts the activation of vitamin D because that's also a cytochrome P450 enzyme. So because of these site problems, the types of the cytochrome P450 enzymes, um, all these uh, molecules get diverted into other pathways that cause trouble. And linoleic acid is a good example, and vitamin D is another example. It can't be activated. Linoleic can't be turned into a cannabinoid, which would really calm things down and make you feel a lot better. And so, um, so you get this, and the linoleic acid is actually really interesting because it gets trapped in the, in the virus uh, membrane. The virus actually has little holes that fit beautifully, that fit linoleic acid beautifully. And so, when it comes through the membrane of the cell, it picks up a lot of linoleic acid and sticks it around its outside. And then, when you get that inflammatory response, the linoleic acid gets uh, oxidized to produce these leukotrienes that are very, um, that then generate more inflammation. So you get a kind of a feedback loop that causes incredible inflammation in the lungs. It starts damaging lung tissues because of all this linoleic acid that it picked up from the cell membrane of the cell. So if you had been able to process that linoleic acid into these endogenous cannabinoids, you wouldn't have so much of it in the cell wall. The virus wouldn't have so much of it in its membrane. We would, you wouldn't have as much inflammation. Okay. So is that too technical as well? No, no, no. <laughs> Look, um, I, I'm I'm very blessed, Stephanie. I've um, for someone who never finished high school, I've mm-hmm. been a furious learner for the last <laughs> five or six years. I've, I've consumed nearly 500 books uh, in different areas, in different areas. And I've got to say, like you know, they say an average CEO reads a book a month. Um, I want to be I want to be president of the universe, you know, by the time from a reading <laughs> capacity. And, and I'm so fortunate because I read all the books of all my guests and a lot of them are, you know, like Dr. Robert Lustig, who we spoke about earlier. Yes. You know, it, it, um, there's there's so many crossovers and Dr. Chris Kenobi and Dr. Gary Fetke and Professor Peter Bruckner. It all ties in to uh, this 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 goal that we have. And and the danger is that a lot of this information, as I sort of mentioned earlier, can be really overwhelming for people. So what what are some basic fundamentals that people can do to improve their own health? Yeah, I actually find it's a pretty simple formula according to what I do to stay healthy. It's really quite simple. It can take a lot of time with cooking. And luckily, I have a husband who loves to cook. So I get off scot-free on that one. But Shout we eat really, really well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, I think we eat really, really well and we work at it. We make sure to get, and, and I do say we eat, uh, you may not agree with this, but we do eat a salad every day with uh, fresh vegetables, you know, um, carrots and um, scallions and um, radishes and, uh, and lettuce and, 
uh, you know, with a dressing that's a uh, that has an uh, organic egg yolk in it. So we get a little bit of raw egg yolk that way. And of course, vinegar, apple cider vinegar, which we use organic apple cider vinegar in the dressing, make our own, he makes our own dressing. Uh, apple cider vinegar is really useful and also fermented foods in general. So sauerkraut, um, you know, and, and even I like fermented dairy products as well, like yogurt and uh, sour cream. Um, and then, of course, you're right about the meats. And we do like uh, hamburger, gra grass-fed beef, you know, and um, seafood, I think, is really, really healthy. So uh, clams and oysters and, and uh, uh, crabs and yeah, mussels are fantastic, actually. They're really um, a great food source uh, for the very nutrient-dense. So you're looking for nutrient-dense foods. And, uh, and I definitely like animal-based, but I don't, probably don't eat as much of an animal-based diet as you do, <laughs> but we certainly don't shy away from animal-based foods. And we believe that you need to have a healthy balance is really what we're saying. And also, of course, low on the carbs. So, you know, low on sugar and processed foods, no processed foods, you know, don't buy anything that comes in a box or a bag, basically, is the idea. And... Um, so, yeah. And then, of course, sunlight exposure, very much so. I, I don't use sunscreen. I don't wear sunglasses. I don't even wear glasses. You know, I'm outside. My eyes are getting the sun. I think that's really important. I talk about that in my book. Uh, the pineal gland sits behind the eyes. Very, very interesting gland, the seat of the soul. And it actually responds to sunlight by making sulfate. And that sulfate, when it get, in the evening, it makes melatonin. That's what makes you sleep, right? So you need to have the melatonin kick in in the evening as the sun sets it's a signal to make the melatonin and the melatonin gets packaged up with sulfate every melatonin molecule goes out with a sulfate stuck to it and gets sent into the cerebrospinal fluid and delivered to the brain and that's both the melatonin and the sulfate are really important for the brain to be able to uh, capitalize on the sulfate to be able to clear cellular debris really really fascinating that the brain uh, needs that melatonin sulfate to help it um, keep ahead of the garbage. And of course, you've got amyloid beta plaque that builds up in association with Alzheimer's. So that becomes very, very important to be able to maintain a healthy brain, getting rid of the debris of living every night as you sleep, uh, getting the, that sulfate in place before you make the melatonin is very important. So you have plenty of sulfate to create the, the healthy food for the brain to sleep. And so sunlight to the eyes, sunlight to the skin, you know, and in the skin, the sunlight not only makes vitamin D, but it also makes cholesterol sulfate. And that's a, a molecule I talk a lot about in my book. Cholesterol sulfate is uh, water soluble. So it can actually just go out into the blood and it'll stick into the membranes of the particles that are in the blood, including the, the red blood cells, but also the LDL particles. So you have those LDL particles and when your LDL is high. That's this uh, so-called bad cholesterol. And when the LDL particle number is high, or the amount of LDL is high, you get stuck with a statin drug, right? They're going to prescribe a statin drug. And the problem with the LDL is that it needs the sulfate in its, needs the cholesterol sulfate in its membrane to stay healthy because that sulfate creates a, a layer of gel around the particle that's called exclusion zone water. So it excludes things. And what, and what it excludes is it keeps that uh, particle safe from glycation damage from the sugars and from oxidation damage from the oxygen. So that if you keep that LDL particle healthy, then it won't cause you trouble. But when you don't have enough sulfate, uh, you end up with unhealthy LDL particles that can cause disease. 
So, well, that's some great advice. And you might be surprised, Stephanie, but I like I have zero issue with uh, your garden salad. Like the um, what what's happened with me is because of a lifetime of uh, abuse to my body, and there's no other way to describe it. I, I was a high functioning alcoholic. You know, I used to uh, consume a lot of recreational drugs. I was a cigarette smoker. I had a very stressful life. I was on medication for 17 years. I really hammered my body and, and metabolically I became pre-diabetic. Uh, and and so out of necessity to try and repair my metabolic health, going on a very low carb diet has worked wonders for me, uh, reversed really all of my health, medical and health issues uh, to a point where I'm confident that the body's going to be able to repair itself. The caveat is that whenever I deviate from that, I suffer. So mm. if I eat a bunch of crap or, um, you know, processed whatever, I, I do get hammered. So I, I can't tolerate plants very well. I, I have started to reintroduce things like organic onion, garlic. Mm, onion and garlic are really good uh, choices yeah. for if you're going to eat <laughs> vegetables. And- and, and like I might cook a steak and then I'll and then I'll brown down the onion and some ghee and then add yeah. some homemade bone nice. broth, which has got like spleen and liver and stuff all yes. cooked in wow. it for three days. That's great. And make it into like a jus and then drizzle it all over so that the onions are well yes. cooked. And that seems to be I seem to be able to tolerate that pretty well. Wow. Um uh and, and and in the process eliminate, you know, the likelihood of any glyphosate coming in there. Uh, don't use non-stick pans. We've got a water filtration system. Absolutely, that, right. That takes all the uh, the fluoride out because uh, there's some the links be- yeah. between fluoride calcifying the pineal gland. Do you know anything right. about that? Yes. No, I do know about that. That's right. Fluoride does damage to the pineal gland, and of course, aluminum does too. Pineal gland accumulates a lot of a lot more aluminum than the other parts of the brain when you have too much aluminum exposure. So that's another thing to watch out for. And where 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 can you find uh, aluminum or aluminium if you're over here? Uh, one, one place is in vaccines. Oh, really? Know. Oh, no shit. Yes, <laughs> aluminum adjuvant, adjuvant in vaccines. There's a guy named Chris Exley who's uh, an expert on aluminum. That's been his life's work. I know him personally, and um, he's at a university in Canada called Keele, K-E-E-L-E, and he's been uh, looking at aluminum in the brain in, in different you know, post-mortem studies of aluminum in the brain, and he found shockingly high levels of aluminum in the brains of autistic children, which was very interesting to me because I've been suspecting that glyphosate enhances the uh, uptake of aluminum in the brain. And so I, I don't know if I talked about that in my book. I'm, I'm not sure, but I, it is something I've written about. And I have a paper together with colleagues on that topic of um, glyphosate helping the aluminum to get into the brain. Um, but these vaccines have aluminum as an adjuvant. Most, you know, many of the vaccines do, and uh, they they need it because they, the vaccine won't work if you don't have something that's going to kind of stir up the immune system and get it to notice because it's too weak otherwise. And so they've been using aluminum for a long, long time. And it's one of those things like glyphosate that because it's already been approved, uh, they just keep it. And whereas if they had to try to bring in something to replace it, there's going to be a bunch of studies and they're going to find problems, you know, so they're, they're staying with the aluminum because they don't have an alternative. It's a difficult problem to try to put something into the vaccines as an adjuvant that can get them to work properly. And so Chris, Chris has been publicly talking about autism and vaccines and aluminum and it has gotten him in big trouble and his university is about to force him 
to resign, to quit. So it's very sad to see that. So uh, there was a paper that I read uh, ages ago, Stephanie, and it was talking, and I don't know how accurate I'd be able to reproduce what I read, but it was along the lines of um, autism in children uh, was prolific. So if they had, if they'd had between one and I want to say like 12 or 24 doses of antibiotics between zero and six months old. So let's say they were cesarean and they were born with complications and had to get emergency surgery and they were smashed with, uh, with antibiotics. So for me, for example, when I was born, my tear ducts were blocked. And so they did mm. minor surgery. They would have given me some antibiotics. Well, they, they definitely did. Um, and then the instances, instances of uh, autism that developed after getting their MMR or their vaccinations, their, their childhood vaccinations, went up like 40% something along those lines. Um, so that, that ties in with what you're saying. So it's not like we're trying to demonise the vaccination. You've got a vulnerability that stems from this right. glyphosate that's taken on from the mother or yes. maybe from the mother's mother as well. Uh, and then this perfect storm of just vulnerability and autoimmune issues that are just making this yes. kid so vulnerable, bow, they get a, a vaccine and then, then you know, you're autistic. Right. I think it's because they've become so weak from all the other exposures that, that they're subjected to that they can't tolerate the vaccine in some cases. You know, it just takes them over the top. And so that's where they notice the effect of the vaccine. It's a it's a the last straw. Right. It's the thing that kicked you over to the other side. Well, uh, I wanted to get back to the to your diet, because I think you are eating probably a high fat diet. Right. It's a low carb, high fat diet. And I would like to bring up this topic. It's a, it's something I don't often get to because it's more complex than some of the other things. But have you heard of deuterium? I have. Yes, yes. I have. Yeah. Uh huh. And do you, what have you heard about deuterium? Do you remember? Or? Oh, look, I was reading something about it recently. Um, it's it's prolific in water, uh, and and in main, mainly in plants as well. Or you, I'm a bit iffy. So you just you do your thing. Yes. <laughs> It's so fascinating. And I actually didn't know any. I knew very little about deuterium before December 2019, which was when I learned about it from a professor at UCLA called Laszlo Boros. And um, he's very interesting. He comes from Hungary. And, and it, it's in Hungary that they really did some of the early studies that figured out that deuterium matters. In the United States, you know, you won't hear anything about deuterium in mainstream medical domain. They don't even hardly, hardly even know what it is. But I think deuterium is actually very, very central to metabolism. And I've become really fascinated with it uh, lately. Uh, read a lot about it in the last you know, year or two. So anyway, it's a, what it is, is it's a heavy hydrogen atom. So hydrogen is the smallest atom on the periodic chart. It's the one over in the, up in the corner. Just one proton and one electron. And deuterium is a natural isotope of hydrogen. It has one proton, one electron, and one neutron. So it's same charge situation, but the neutron is an uncharged particle that has the same weight as the proton. So it's twice as heavy, essentially twice as heavy as hydrogen. And it's a natural isotope and it's found all over the place in the water. So very natural. And it turns out that deuterium is very, very damaging to the mitochondria. The mitochondria are the workhorses of the cells that make, your, make the energy for the cell. They depend on having low deuterium in their water supply to stay healthy. And there are all these enzymes that are so fascinating that have skills to select for hydrogen over deuterium in their product. And those enzymes work around the mitochondria to deliver to them deuterium depleted water. 
So the water in the mitochondria normally has a lot less deuterium than the natural water, seawater, for example, because of all these processes that go on. And the enzymes that do this are enzymes that are specifically, I suspect, are being affected by glyphosate. So they match what I call my glyphosate susceptibility motif. They're going to be sensitive to glyphosate disruption. So I think glyphosate is disrupting the body's very skilled and very sophisticated mechanism by which it maintains low deuterium in the mitochondria and maintains my, mitochondrial health through that. And so when you don't have, when you have high deuterium, you end up with reactive oxygen species in the mitochondria, you get damage, you get DNA mutations and all this other stuff, eventually leading to cancer and metabolic diseases. So um, the thing about the foods you're eating is that they are naturally low in deuterium. The fats have much lower deuterium. In fact, ghee and butter have the lowest deuterium, I think. Ghee, butter, and pork fat, very low deuterium levels. Uh, compared to, and probably the uh, beef tallow as well. All these uh, fats have very low deuterium. So when you eat a high fat diet, you are eating a low deuterium diet, which is good because it's helping your mitochondria to maintain low deuterium in the water. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that. And that does align with what I had read now that you've jogged my memory. Um, uh, and it, this ties into something else. So there was a, a Joe McCullough interviewed a guy whose name escapes me. He was a heart surgeon. Um, no, that's a totally different thing. That's, that's regarding dental health. Um, I did have a tooth extracted the other day, which is why I'm not as sharp as what I would normally be. Um, <laughs> and because it, it had, uh, they wanted to do a root canal on it, and that heart surgeon was talking about 100% of uh, root canals that they did did research on had some issue creating an autoimmune uh, response in the body because it was like a leaky gut in the mouth. Yes, that's but, really scary. So so I'm going to get rid of, um, uh, well, I've got to figure out whether an implant will uh, circumvent that. That's a whole other thing. But the guy I'm thinking about was a hydrogen. Ah, uh, oh, Yes. Yeah, you know the guy I'm talking about? I'll put the I link. Might, I'll but put, I know about the hydrogen, yes. I'll put the link. So I've started taking McCola's uh, therapeutic hydrogen uh, yes. supplementation. What do you know about that? Has it? Have you noticed anything from it? I'm curious. Yeah, honestly, I have. And between you, me, and the fence post, when Anna, my fiancé, started taking them, let's just say certain things that were already <laughs> very good improved radically. <laughs> She's going to kill me. But um, like it was so obvious. It was so yeah. obvious. And I certainly noticed a significant increase in energy uh, straight away. So That's very, very interesting. Yeah. Yes. So hydrogen gas is one of the things that I've been promoting in, in the context of deuterium. It's quite interesting because hydrogen gas, so the hydrogen in the water you know, the, if you have hydrogen in the water and it needs to get into the gas phase, it has to be light, right? And it has to be able to not to be stuck to the uh, the molecules in the water. Deuterium binds much more strongly than hydrogen does to the other molecules. And deuterium is heavier. So when you make hydrogen gas, it's de de deuterium depleted hydrogen. It's deuterium depleted. And in fact, there was a paper I found from a long time ago, like the 1960s, where they looked at certain bac bacteria. The, the bacteria have actually enzymes that can make hydrogen gas, which is pretty cool, out of the regular molecules that they're seeing. They make hydrogen gas, and they do that in your gut. You know, you end up with hydrogen gas in your gut. And um, that hydrogen gas that in this particular study, they, they found out that that hydrogen gas had severely reduced uh, deuterium. It was only 20 parts per million instead of 155, which is a normal amount in seawater. 
hugely reduced in deuterium. So I think the body, actually the gut microbes, actually take advantage of this enzyme that makes hydrogen gas. And then that gas gets turned back into organic matter by other enzymes from other microbes. And that organic matter then has depleted deuterium because it came from that hydrogen gas. So it's a whole distillation process that the gut uses to be able to create metabolically useful molecules that you can use to for your mitochondria to metabolize those molecules and end up with deuterium depleted water. It's really, really cool stuff. So the hydrogen gas, I think it's probably very, very healthy um, therapy. And I don't think it's terribly expensive either, right? It's uh, Well, I can get McCullough stuff sent to Australia for about 75 Australian dollars for three months worth. And, and mm-hmm. um, look, given it's it's still in its infancy, really, there's only about 10 years of data on I think, but it, it's inert. It doesn't seem to be any link to any issues with it, uh, any, any negative issues. And given yes. how abundant it is in the universe, um, one would hope that it's okay. Um, they do suggest to take it in cycles. I don't think it's something you just take every day for the rest of your life necessarily. But um, I'm a I'm an ultra distance runner for fun. You know, I'm yes, not a professional, uh-huh. and and it's supposedly really good for uh, recovery from from distance running. And, and I mentioned to you off camera, I was uh, going to attempt a 100 kilometer run on the first right. of uh, August this year, 2021, on zero carb. There's not enough yes. interest in doing the 100. So there's only a 50K race available. So I'm going to do it with that. And I'm going to use cooked, freshly cooked, uh, organic, grass-fed, you know, lamb shoulder fat. The nice. protein doesn't interest me when I'm running. It's mm. only the fat. The fat um, is what will give you really a lot of energy because it's such a good energy source. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it makes the, sense. The Element uh, branded uh uh, electrolyte sachets I'll be drinking. Um, I will take on a little bit of caffeine in the form of just black coffee and um, and and homemade bone broth that will have a lot of uh, fat in there as well. So it's going to be a really interesting thing, but I will have a couple of those hydrogen tablets throughout the course of it because the way it works from what I've, from what I've been told, it's like a really mild antioxidant and will mm-hmm. reduce the inflammatory response from right. putting my body through uh, the hell that is – uh, you know, distance running. And um, it makes sense that it's anti-inflammatory because it's helping to reduce the deuterium levels in the mitochondria. And that's how you reduce the reactive oxygen species because the enzymes that get messed up by the deuterium start releasing reactive oxygen when they have get hit by deuterium. Well, th- th- this is really interesting. Um, Anna, the reason we, she's been taking it is, as I mentioned as well, she's been dealing with an ectopic and she's gone through, at this stage, 13 miscarriages. We've been very public yeah, about amazing. it. And uh, and trying to get to the root cause of it. Um, she's part of the 5% of the female population that don't respond to methotrexate, which is a chemotherapy drug that they administer when you are going through an ectopic to stop the cells mm. dividing so that it doesn't um, burst through the... Uh, the fallopian tube, which it did three years ago. Now, fingers crossed, Stephanie, at this moment in time, it's looking like we've been able to save the tube this time around. We did catch it a little bit earlier, but she's been taking this this uh, hydrogen therapy mm, just as a to, to mitigate, you know, hey, it might help. And uh, what a wonderful outcome that will be to be able to, A, save that tube, Uh you know, because once the tube's gone, you've got to rely wholly and solely on IVF. So, um, yes. 
That's really interesting. And I think it makes sense that the hydrogen gas would help. So that's great. Holy crap, man. There's just so <laughs> Where do you even stop on this stuff? Stephanie, we could talk about this stuff all day. And I think what might be uh, a good idea is to bring you back on the show um, uh, in the future because yes. what, what else are you working on at the moment? Oh, I have lots of things to talk about. One that I'm concerned about is these vaccines. I want to mention the COVID-19 vaccines. They're experimental technology. They have not been properly studied. They've been unleashed on the entire world. And it would be one thing if they said it's optional, but they're forcing people to get them against their will. And I'm very, very uh, disturbed by that, by what's happening there, this kind of rollout of this massive experiment on the entire globe. And I think there are going to be very big negative consequences, I predict, uh, from what I've seen. I've been studying what they do and how they work, and it doesn't look good to me. So I'm anticipating um, increases. I mean, the United States is already burdened with so many neurodegenerative and autoimmune diseases, and I think the numbers are going to go up um, because of this massive vaccination campaign. Are you able to share any any ideas about what, what some of the issues might be, really? Just... You know, yeah, cool. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a whole paper together with Greg Nye, and you could post a link to it if you want on the, on the sure page. Thing, um, yeah. And it's, it's it title starts with worse than the disease question mark. And then there's a subtitle about the messenger RNA vaccines. So it's a deep dive into the technology and the potential consequences. Um, it's an over 40 page long paper with lots and lots of references. Um, and so we basically, you know, when you look at the way it's done. It's just an extremely unnatural form of RNA that they're sticking into your body. And they've got it wrapped in, you know, very tightly wrapped to keep it from getting broken down. Normally, if you inject RNA into your body, it just disintegrates right away because there's enzymes that break it apart. So they had to obsess on how, figuring out how to keep it from breaking down. And they succeeded by manipulating the RNA, making it very not natural. And then by adding, you know, polyethylene glycol and adding these cationic lipids. So there's all this stuff they put in there, all of which is not natural to create this pellet that's like extremely toxic. And so they want it to be, they want the cell that injected into the muscle, the muscle cells respond um, by drawing in the immune cells. It's like, my God, there's something horrible happening here. We don't understand. Come on, help us. The immune cells come in, they eat the, eat the poison as well. And then a cascade happens, which eventually leads to, the immune cells releasing all these little particles called exosomes that are packaged up with the um, the, the spike protein because it's the whole thing is you got to make spike protein you know and the the, uh, the vaccine just forces your cells they have no they can't stop themselves from making spike protein and it's so sturdy that it'll stick around for a long time so they'll make a lot of it and they'll be very uh, overwhelmed with the spike protein so they ship it out into these little pellets. And the exosomes go all over the body, but they can travel along the vagus nerve and get into the brain and they can cause all kinds of brain injury. And then they can uh, the spike protein because it's so such a strong um, signal, your, your immune system overdoes it and they make a lot of antibodies to the spike protein, way more than you would get if you just got the disease. It's, it's overkill. It's tremendous overkill. And, and it also sets the immune system into a set point where those antibodies are more likely to become autoantibodies. So you'll get things like multiple sclerosis or lupus or um, rheumatoid arthritis or celiac disease. All these autoimmune diseases are potentiated by the response to that vaccine. So I'm predicting neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, autism, if we manage to start vaccinating the children. And um, 
Lou Gehrig's disease and all these really de uh, debilitating neurodegenerative diseases, as well as this whole class of autoimmune diseases that I mentioned earlier. So I think it's going to be very bad. I hope I'm wrong, but I can see the process and I can't see where my science is flawed. Oh, wow. What sort of time frames are we talking about before a lot of this? I wish I knew. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking the Parkinson's would take 20 years. Like you would just find the rates going up and you wouldn't be able to connect it. You wouldn't connect the dots and they would make sure not to connect the dots because they don't want people to know that these vaccines are not safe. But actually, the studies are showing Parkinson's is showing up right away. Very shocking how quickly uh, people are developing Parkinsonian-like symptoms as, as side effects of these vaccines. There's a tremendous amount of data in the various uh, adverse event reporting systems that are coming out of different countries. You know, UK, Europe has a whole bunch. The United States has the VARS database, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. So when you look at the data in those systems, it's just incredible how many reactions you're getting to these uh, these new vaccines that you weren't, it were much, much lower numbers, including, for example, uh, spontaneous abortion, much, much higher rates of spontaneous abortion, much, much higher rates of death, and much, much higher rates of exotic. In fact, you know, things like um, Bell's palsy, which you, we weren't seeing at all with the other vaccines. We're seeing lots of cases of Bell's palsy, anaphylactic shock, uh, and then neurological problems that are connected to Parkinson's disease. Things like freezing up, literally freezing up, which is a very characteristic feature of Parkinson's disease. So it's really, I think the evidence is showing up in the databases and the government refuses to admit that there's a problem, even though it's very obvious that there is. And there are a lot of people who are, um, speaking up uh, and shouting actually to the rooftops, but they're being severely suppressed. So that they're furiously trying to take down anybody who, who talks about these vaccines potentially not being safe. So we're in a really bad situation right now, I think. I think it's almost end of times kind of um, worrisome outcomes that I, we can anticipate. I have to say, I'm very glad that I'm as old as I am because I won't have to put up with this for some large percentage of my life. <laughs> it's going to be pretty grim. Uh, we need to really, um, we need to get to a different place very soon. You know, are you, are you optimistic for the future, despite what you've just said? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I keep on thinking there are many people who are speaking up and they're being very, very brave and they're learning the science and they're, it's coming together and we're understanding like, you know, my friends and do you, for example, you're really figuring out how biology works and how to keep yourself healthy. And lots of people are doing that. They're on that journey. Um, they're fighting against an incredibly powerful force. You know, it just seems unstoppable. I keep thinking there's going to be a crack somewhere that's just going to open up into a big chasm because I can't understand how it could keep on going the way it is without absolute catastrophe. So um, I, it's just, uh, I'm really shocked by how good they are, how skilled they are at keeping uh, the main public from knowing what's happening. They just are really good at suppressing information. And, you know, they, they basically clobber the career of anybody who dares to speak out. So we're in extremely dangerous times. Um, I have a vision of the future as a time when we finally realize we're doing everything wrong. We go back to our small organic farms. We're very, very careful about toxic chemicals. Anything that's not natural, we're very aware there's probably trouble. So we go to a much more natural state, more like the old days. Uh, but we do it very intelligently. And we could even use robotics to help with the weeds. I mean, there are ways we could really fix these problems if we would just put our will to it. We need the will. We have really the capacity and, you know, humans are smart. If we can do the crazy things that we've been able to do with these vaccines, we can do a lot of other challenging things as well. We just need to do the right ones rather than the wrong ones. 
I've got a theory that came to me when I was finishing off your book yesterday, Stephanie, and, and uh, I always like to read the book just before I do the interview so it's fresh in my mind. But there was one particular chapter in there. It was regarding crayfish or lobsters. I forget which one. And there was a study that showed that uh, they're very social creatures ordinarily, but yes. when exposed to, to glyphosate, they became uh, greedy and like self-absorbed. Yeah, in, and in even belligerent, up, right? Belligerent, right? Each other. Yes. And it's to do with the reduction in dopamine production, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. And, and, so and serotonin my, too, yeah. Sorry, serotonin. So my theory yeah. is uh, since, since I've sorted my health out, like my mental health has gone through the roof. My contribution to society has become exponential. Uh, yes. I, I, I operate from a love and abundance mindset. I'm not perfect, and I do get angry at times about things. Uh, and I do fly off the handle on occasion <laughs> if I allow myself to get caught up in too much social media and stuff. But fund- fundamentally, I'm doing the best I can with the tools I have available, and and great things are happening in my life, right? And it's because I'm healthy. And mm-hmm. everyone else that I that I interview that's on the same journey that is healthy. Uh, that they're on they're on the same wavelength. The people that I have challenges with seem to be unhealthy and mm. they are the ones that uh, I think there's a mental illness component to it mm-hmm. they're not they're not functioning and thriving how human beings uh, have evolved to function and uh, that's why I think there's so much aggression building up in the world because the the sheer volume of people uh, that exist are becoming unhealthier and unhealthier what are, you, what are your thoughts on that I completely agree and I have to tell you I was really surprised with the deuterium when I found a story. Uh, early work that was done in the 1960s where they exposed rats to very high levels of deuterium in their water. Really interesting what happened to them because they became um, initially right away, really after 24 hours, they became very violent and very, uh, they were just very belligerent towards each other and all attacking each other. They were just very, very unhappy and uh, ferocious really. And then after, you know, six or seven days, one by one, they started to succumb and die. And then they would just be lying there and letting the other ones beat up on them because they couldn't fight back anymore. And after about 10 days, all of them were dead. I mean, it was really that dramatic with a very high, it's completely not natural and you'd never experienced that in reality. But that's what deuterium does at a very high level. So when you think of glyphosate disrupting the ability to keep the deuterium out of the mitochondria, I think that, and then of course the serotonin problem, and that's all connected to the deuterium too, because serotonin gets depleted when you have a deuterium problem. So you have this low serotonin, high deuterium situation that really makes you uh, nasty, you know, just not really um, feeling love and spiritual um, well-being you get to the opposite of that. And that could be even why we have so much violent crime. I actually think it could be connected to all the shootings that we're seeing in America. You know, these crazy people who just go in and kill a bunch of children in the classroom. It's so bizarre. It's just so beyond any behavior I would have ever expected when I was a child. Now it's like, oh yeah, okay, we have another shootout. Of course we do, because that's what happens. You know, that's how humans are. We become uh, immune to, you know, we can't even recognize that this is not normal. You know, even autism, like, you know, we have one in 54 autism rates in this country and nobody seems to be particularly upset about that. That's just like really, really strange. You know, we adjust to the new normal very fast, which is unfortunate because we're not uh, we're not speaking out about these problems that are very, very serious. Well, the the, the regarding the pineal gland, like like uh, we were talking about earlier about the uh, fluoride 
causing calcification of the pineal gland or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. The the link between my spirituality levels, Stephanie, and uh, versus what I was three years or four years ago, I, I have become. I'm not. I don't identify as being religious at all, but I am very spiritual, mm-hmm. and I think it would be ignorant for anyone to to think that we're alone in this planet, right, or in this mm-hmm. universe, whatever that might be. But uh, I, I've become way more in tune, and something that I find so fascinating. Animals respond to me better. Mm-hmm. Like they, that's they, interesting. Yeah. So um, I'll tell you a funny story. I was running on the beach with my brother about a year ago up in Queensland, and honestly, about four or five dogs that were being walked by their owners, and it was a leash off beach, started running next to me. Mm, and I joked so nice. and, I, and I said to him, oh, "There you go, mate. They're, they're following the alpha male." <laughs> and he said, <laughs> "He said it's because you smell like bloody steak." <laughs> <laughs> which, I, which I thought was pretty funny, but um, funny. but but in all seriousness, like animals do respond really well to me, yes. and I, I just wonder if it's it's you know That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, like it is all, all yes. sorts of animals, and I don't like cats either, yeah. and even cats like me. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I think it's really, I do think that the whole, um, you know, emotional side of, of how we get affected by these chemicals is really, really puts us into a very fighting kind of uh, state of mind. It's not good at all. You know, you can't uh, enjoy life because you feel so, you're very suspicious of everybody, you know, you're just very um, on edge about everything. And, and it's just not pleasant at all, even for people to be with someone like that. So it's, really going to help the society to heal in terms of our ability to get along with each other. I think if we can get rid of glyphosate, for example, and fix the deuterium problem. Well, I think you're a wonderful example. And, and I'll bring this up because you did mention it on another podcast. I think you're 73 years yes. young, Stephanie. Yes. <laughs> and, and you've got more energy and vitality than, than any 73-year-old I know. So uh, <laughs> you're a great example of, of someone living a really um, healthy life. And uh how can people find you uh, to learn more about this stuff? Yes, I have a webpage, stephaniesenef.net, um, so that should be pretty. If you can remember my name, stephaniesenef.net, I have a lot of stuff posted there. I've been writing blog posts periodically, as less often than I would like, but I get so busy. So, um, And then I do have an MIT webpage too, which is a more complicated name and very uh, has a lot of information, tons of information. And my stephaniesenef.net will link to the other one. I'm also on me, we, and uh, Twitter. So I'm um, active there. I'm on Facebook, but I'm not very active anymore because I've kind of been <laughs> a little worried about getting kicked off altogether. So, Stephanie, do you have any concluding thoughts for our audience today? Uh, uh, just uh, recommend that everybody think about buying certified organic when you shop and really tell your friends and your family to do the same. You will notice you know, really great improvements in your health if you do that. And the extra money you spend on food will be returned in space with the money you don't spend on healthcare and how well you feel. So it's totally worth it to spend the extra money. And thank God that there is a certified organic label and you can buy that in America that's quite uh, available and you can pretty much buy almost everything you would want to buy certified organic. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Stephanie Seneff. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. 
Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.